I would like to ask you first how you'd like to define yourself or maybe be the first time listening to you. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I work at Brown University. I moved recently in the summer and um, uh, my group works with uh, machine learning, applied machine learning to design materials and structures. And on the side, sometimes we also develop algorithms in the machine learning uh, field and other fields as well. If we think about the problem we have in for a special, especially in, in soft robotics or material science, sometimes when we design new materials, so there's the material aspect, then there is the geometry and the structure. And there's two approaches either we use our intuition and sometimes it gets very complicated and I think that's where you try to help to come up with such a new material or structure. How do you see the the two sides? If you design a new material, can you give an example designing new material structure? It could be very challenging by intuition. And when maybe machine learning or optimization, which I, I love if you can dissect what's the difference, could fail. Uh, versus our intuition as a designer? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. So there are different ways that uh, machine learning and optimization algorithms can help in the design process. The easiest uh, example to consider, perhaps also the less interesting, but we'll start there, is for the cases where you already have a concept in your mind, you already have an idea, but you don't know exactly what the parameter should be for that particular concept. So let's say that you know there have been decades of development in, in airplane, aircraft design. So there are many components that you already have a good idea about what they, they should be. So what you can do then is just parameterize them and change those parameters, all of those parameters in a controlled way, in a guided way, in such a way that you get better performance, you know, lower fuel consumption, for example, or whatever it is. And this happens at the large scale, but it also happens at the small scale, at the microstructural level for the material. It's the same thing. As long as you can control the components or chemistry, you know, mixing different chemicals and different compounds to come up with a particular material. So this is a case where, you know, things are more or less controlled and the scientist is very important because the, an idea, the concept that you're exploring has, uh, assigns a lot of potential to the problem that you're trying to solve. Do you see what I mean? On the other side, there's a more open-ended problem called inverse design problems, where there you basically say, no, I do not want to have a preconceived idea and I want to still find the best possible solution that solves my problem. That's a different way of putting it. There you're trying to push to the algorithm all the complexity, even to come up with a particular concept. And that second uh, route is uh, particularly interesting for us and that's what we are exploring at the moment actually where we're trying to have the machine learning algorithm or the optimization algorithms to actually come up with a design for a particular function instead of being the other way around so i just uh, i think uh, your article in iMechanica 2020 it was really an excellent article i think it's just written in a simple way, just people in material science can relate why we should use it. And I think this gap, I'm still also learning. So I want to maybe ask you one of the question I think um, was asked to you by one of members that if we, for example, just for listeners to make sense of what you do, if we have like a rubber, and that's part of my work also, if we have a rubber and we have like a solid inclusion in this, in this rubber matrix, 
and we want to reduce the von Mises stresses as much as possible. And in your article, you spoke about the traditional technique in machine learning, an advanced one, and what's the difference between optimization and machine learning. And I find there's a lot of things. I hope that you can just guide us through in a simple way for people listening. Just what's when I should use this or this. And if we speak such a problem like that, rubber matrix and inclusion in the middle of the matrix to reduce the stresses, how you can design that in a certain way since we have maybe played with the morphology, with the architecture of the inclusion, how, if we speak like one, one or four inclusion, I don't know, we can, we can increase numbers here, but it seems very complicated. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm curious from your point of view, if we have such a problem, how you can start thinking to solve this problem, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. So the, the first part of your question about uh, you know, machine learning and optimization and when to, to consider one or the other, uh, as you will see in a moment, the, the lines are actually quite blurred nowadays between optimization and machine learning. But in a, in a conventional way, let's say, um, you use machine learning when your target is to learn a model in the context of engineering. So what you're trying to do when you're using machine learning is whether you're classifying, regressing, finding clusters, even to some extent generative techniques, you are collecting data and you're making sense out of data, finding patterns and, and most of the time really interpolating the data in a high dimensional space. It's a non-trivial task, but it's still uh, largely interpolated. That's one thing, and this, is, this can be very useful in engineering because oftentimes the reality is so complex, there are so many variables that you actually cannot make sense of it. You don't have a, a clean analytical model for every engineering problem that you have out there. If you do, and the, and the analytical model works well, you don't need machine learning in that particular case. So that's the, the, the usual uh, case for machine learning. Optimization is, is different in the sense that what you're trying to do is finding a particular solution, a particular optimum that could be, you know, maximizing properties or minimizing, but you're really trying to find that one solution, right? In machine learning, you're trying to learn the entire domain and optimization, you're trying to find a particular solution. When it gets interesting is that nowadays the lines are blurred. In fact, there are optimization algorithms that actually are more powerful because they also have regression techniques from machine learning, for example. You also have uh, very interesting generative machine learning models that are indeed trying to generate new data, even though it is a bit contentious. Most people still claim that they use so much data, they are still interpolatory, really. But at least, you know, there's a lot of push for blurring the lines and actually having optimization and machine learning working together because if you create if you make sense of the world if you have a model underlying your optimization process then you should get closer and faster to the global optimum maybe quick question here again for the data since you mentioned that sometimes especially uh like hyperelastic materials sometimes in the simulation we use some tools physic engine tool and it seems that it doesn't really capture what's happening in certain region of the behavior. And maybe question to you when you have this experiment, and I think you touched on that, if it's really noisy, uncertain, and we need sometimes in the lab, you know, that data is not that, yeah, not all the time reproducible. And we have the simulation. And I'm curious from your 
uh, work, how you merge the two together so that you can get, give like understanding or complete the, the, the story behind the model of the structure or the model of the material. Yeah, so that's another excellent point you're bringing. Um, we know that models are not perfect. And in fact, we even know that experiments are not perfect. They can have uncertainties because, you know, the temperature in the lab is different or because when you're modeling, uh, you don't have the full physics of the problem and, and you can actually have an inaccurate prediction. So um, this is actually where uh, probabilistic machine learning techniques, Bayesian machine learning techniques in particular, are very powerful because they're not just trying to make your prediction, they're also trying to quantify the uncertainty, what you don't know about what you're predicting. And this provides you more confidence that, that you are, you know, indeed uh, uh, having a, a, a prediction, but you know what you don't know, or at least you estimate what you don't know. That's one that can be very helpful. And we use probabilistic uh, machine learning strategies quite often, to be honest, because when we are working with experimentalists, we see how valuable this kind of information is for, for them. But you also mentioned another thing that is uh, very important, which is the possibility of having data that comes from different sources. So you can actually enhance the experiments, which might be expensive and, and time consuming to, to run, but it's still, you know, as close to the ground truth as you can get. It's the real phenomenon, but you can augment that data with simulations, for example, or any other kind of modeling strategies that, that you want to pursue, which might be of, of lower accuracy. We call it low fidelity or lower fidelity, but maybe you have more data. So then what you can do is you can put the things to do things together. In fact, you can even more have more than two sources of data and, uh, and actually learn from lower quality data but in, in large quantities and then only probe the experiments in the in the right places if you will in the best possible places and in fact at brown i'm very fortunate to have a, a, an outstanding colleague george carnelakis who has been one of the pioneers in uh, in these multi-fidelity machine learning methods and it's really interesting his work excellent maybe i'll touch again about um when you mentioned generative design, and maybe we can go again, for example, the matrix, and we have the one inclusion, or say multi-material design, and we have to come up with different architecture for the multi-material we have. How do you see generative model here can come up with maybe, I don't know, just new designs, and at the same side we have this intuition, because still, maybe if you can clarify your view about the generative model, like the ratio to encoder, for example, this kind of thing is we, how we can use that for material design or soft robots, and especially if we have two different materials. And it seems complicated because there's many dimension here, and you spoke about how we can use model order reduction so that we can focus on the interesting part, but how you can do that from the lens of intuition as a designer and the lens of generative models to come up with what other possibilities we have. And when we know that's a limit, just this is the limit. Yeah, so as we know, there are a few things that uh, most machine learning models are not very uh, good at, let's say. Um, it is oftentimes difficult to build an intuition for what uh, algorithms are really doing 
Because by definition, machine learning models uh, are models that have many parameters. In fact, most modern machine learning models are over-parameterized. They have more parameters than you have data, for example, which sounds counterintuitive, but it's shown time and time again that in many different scenarios, you can actually get great performance by just optimizing this over-parameterized space, and actually it has really interesting properties. You can even follow how the loss, how the error gets lower with the fact that you have this over-parameterized space. So there's, there's really, you know, a counterintuitive set of results that are uh, explaining the success of machine learning, but they're not, they're not contributing to building that intuition that engineers are so good and scientists are so good about. So I think because of this, uh, uh, we should not look at machine learning as the panacea, if you will, a cure for all evils. I think machine learning as it stands is a tool, a set of tools that should complement the insights and the knowledge accumulated by humanity in different scenarios, right? And, and if you have deep understanding, you know, again, a physical equation that actually has meaning and, and, and clear models, they should be the starting point. And you, you can bring in the machine learning tools as, a, as to guide the process or to augment the process to have better accuracy, explore regions of the space that you couldn't explore because it's too fast, things like that. So that's one. It was a long answer, I'm sorry, but just, just to be, be sure about what, you know, every, everything has their, their own applicability. However, there is interesting literature out there about using machine learning tools to build equations. And I know that you've interviewed Hod Lipson, Professor Hod Lipson, who is now at Columbia, was really a pioneer in, in, in doing this, using, uh, in the beginning was genetic algorithms, then it developed into, into different strategies uh, involving neural networks and so on, where you even though are starting from a, an algorithm that is a little bit opaque, a little bit of a, of a black box, because it outputs a, an equation that you can read, you can actually interpret the result afterwards as well. So it's not, you know, a, a perfect uh, cure, but if you do find these equations, and that's hard to do in, in, in general cases, but if you do find them, you actually may extract some intuition for the problem as well. So, you know, it's such a vast field. There's so many tools out there that uh, you can even use them to actually build that intuition that you wanted to have. But most cases, you, you better you know, keep, keep working on, on that science and, and all the, the theory because it's still very, very helpful. Great. Let me ask you about your views. Maybe you have witnessed some article from Soft Robotics in Materia. It's very inter interesting. So if there is something you said like, will I disagree with what, what have, have been done so far here? Or do you think this is not the right way? Do you have this kind of different view or criticism? Sometimes we just, when we view other approaches, maybe doesn't make sense to... Yes, uh, I think that, and I think this is not just me. I think a lot of people feel this way. 
because you know machine learning and if you want to go with the buzzword artificial intelligence is is so exotic and so exciting and you know the prospects of having an artificial being that has better cognitive abilities than human beings and it, it's believed i believe that this is going to happen i don't know when but i i firmly believe that we will be able to decode how intelligence really works and, and we'll be able to to actually achieve uh, uh, um, you know uh, higher cognitive abilities than we currently have uh, at the moment as human beings but we also know that it, that seems to be a bit far it certainly is uh, the state of the art at the moment is based on brute force data even the, the amazing GPT-3 model that uh, that uh, you know came out uh, recently with its incredible ability of answering questions you know it almost does seem at, mo at moments that there is a clear reasoning behind it fails in very very simple cases basic reasoning scenarios so we we have done amazing work excellent progress but there's also a lot of hype about what what, is, what happens in, in the literature now, to answer your question in the context of engineering, applied science, what we all clearly see is this, this allure of using machine learning for everything, right? And unfortunately at the moment, and this is normal when you're getting to start to know these tools, but unfortunately at the moment you, you have basically a, the vast majority of people using machine learning strategies for problems that would not require them, for example, in mechanics, soft robotics, and so on, there's a lot of work using machine learning for elasticity cases. Elasticity is solved. You mostly don't have any uh, issues. You can actually have predictions that are very fast with different methods and so on. But it's very easy to generate data for elastic cases. So then, it's the best way, it's the easiest entry point for you to test different machine learning algorithms. And there's nothing wrong with it, but it probably is not where machine learning should be used, right? You should be using it to solve for things that you really couldn't solve before. So that's, that's one of the things that you see, and this is just an example, and there's many others. The other case, and this is more intricate, let's say, is that in computer science, there was this trend, and, and it's clearly justified, about creating overparameterized models, neural networks with many, many, many parameters, so many that you can actually find different configurations that will make you similar predictions. And as I said before, there are clear reasons for why this works so well in that scenario. But this is also creating a situation where people have a tendency to overcomplicate models and uh, basically uh, propose ever more complicated neural network architectures that really is quite questionable on whether or not they would be necessary. Especially in the context of engineering where you usually don't have millions or billions of data points like most computer scientists do when you use uh, search engines like Google, Yahoo, or whatever it is, Bing, and so on, right? So, 
The two criticisms to conclude are using machine learning for problems that actually do not require it, or overcomplicating the, the, the actual machine learning algorithms for problems that actually would require machine learning but don't require that level of complexity. And that may lead to, you know, poor predictions of uncertainty or it interpolates very well, but it, not, it doesn't extrapolate well. And this is really exactly the opposite of the best scientists in the history of humanity have done. Einstein was, is the most famous scientist in our history. And he, he, his claim to fame was always the simplest possible model that explains the phenomenon, not the opposite. And as machine learners, sometimes we have a tendency to do the opposite. Thanks so much. I think the answer was really clear and concise. I, I think you mentioned in one of the examples in the in iMechanic article that flying airplane from living room to kitchen. I think this is maybe similar to what you tried to say here. And maybe let's bring another question. Why do you think we tend to do that? Since we have the material science and here the part of using machine learning optimization, this what leads to this two problems we have here? What do you think? But why? Well, I can try to offer an explanation. I don't know if I would be right, but I think there's, unfortunately, on one side, there's the bad side and the good side. Let's start with the good side. <laughs> so the good side is that obviously, because it, there are cases where it was demonstrated that these overparameterized models, very complicated architectures, really do bring better performance in the context of very, very large data, you are motivated to say, you know, if, if they needed this to, you know, train the GPT-3, uh, why, why shouldn't I use this super fancy, very complicated uh, AI algorithm, right? But again, when you're doing this and you're transporting it to a simpler problem or a problem with other characteristics, you actually may end up doing the wrong thing, right? So it, you may be well-intentioned, but Actually, uh, you know, it, it just wasn't needed. That's the well-intentioned. Then I can't help it but think, I've been victims of, of, of this kind of, of thing before as well, but I can't help but think that in some circumstances, it looks fancier, right? It's, it's just you seem smarter. It's more interesting, more exciting. To actually go for very novel architectures, actually, I really didn't need all of this. And in fact, it's actually probably making it worse in many ways because I'm not being as predictive away from the training data as, as I should be. So there might be scientists nowadays have this, this, this inner conflict, right, that you, you have to be fancy all the time in order to make the news or, you know, to go for higher impact journals. But we have to be careful because that might not be really the way to go in my opinion. So I want to go for the, the work you did uh, uh, with the spider structure. I think it was really interesting, the design of the spider with the structure. And I really like the fact that uh, maybe from biological evolution aspect, that's how the, the spider, for example, can build this web. Sometimes it's a different, uh, maybe symmetric, and sometimes it's not symmetric, depending on the gravity. And this kind of aspect, how 
you do that from uh, machine learning or optimization, if we compare the two things, how, when you consider this problem, what is actually the design steps when you look to the evolution and then how we can maybe make it more better the machine learning? Can you tell us about the story behind this structure? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so basically, the, that work was uh, in collaboration with uh, an outstanding experimental group led by Richard Marte at, um, at TU Delft. And uh, the work is led by, by our postdoctoral scholar, Don Gilshin, and uh, Andrea Cupertino, who did the experiment. So this was really a, a team effort. And this is one example of what we were discussing in the very beginning of, 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 this, uh, of this interview about actually coming up with a winning concept in the first place. So we, in this particular article, did not uh, find uh, uh, a design out of nothing, right? Like say, okay, I want to have a, the highest quality factor possible. Quality factor is just a, a, a metric that tells you how good a sensor is, right? So, uh, um, and then you want to have this quality factor as high as possible because you'll be able to do very precise measurements. For example, maybe in the future, gravitational waves and, and so on. So you want to push the quality factor as high as possible. But, of course, there's an infinite amount of possibilities, an infinite amount of designs that exist out there. So, in this particular case, the simulations are fairly expensive, and the experiments are incredibly expensive. It's a very, very uh, advanced manufacturing process. Uh, and Delft has a very specific uh, set of, of settings uh, that actually make this possible, and Richard is an expert in that. Long story short, you could not do one million simulations and, you know, thousands of experiments. You could do a few hundreds. Now, there, you have a bit of a conundrum because, okay, you, you have all these possibilities in design, but you will only have a few shots at really finding out whether the design is viable or not. So, again, this is where the intuition the knowledge that you've been accumulating over the years, especially in the case of Richard, because he's from the field, comes in and says, okay, I cannot just have this huge search of the design space. Let's try to find some inspiration out there. So we went to nature. It turns out that some kinds of spiders, they actually sense their prey by the vibration of the, of the spider web. And then they know where the location, the exact location of the, the prey is. So, you know, in a way, spider webs are, are nature's efficient force sensor. So we thought, you know, could we actually just take that concept, parameterize the spider web, use advanced materials for optomechanics, you know, uh, uh, silicon nitride or silicon carbide, shine a laser onto it, make it vibrate and measure this, this property, but instead of doing it in trial and error in, with experiments, which is what usually people do, even someone as talented as Richard is an experimentist, that's a, a bit of what they did together with theory. Could we just use, uh, in this particular case, Bayesian optimization? So it's an optimization algorithm that uses a machine learning regressor to probe the space in the, you know, as, as, as good as possible, right? And and, and find this design. And, and we were lucky to, to find out that after 150 iterations, 
we broke the world record at the time for the highest quality factor in, in those optomechanical sensors. And, you know, the algorithm is not that fancy. It's a known algorithm. But because people that are at the cutting edge in experiments have a lot of other expertise, but perhaps at the moment they're not looking too much into machine learning, it's largely unexplored, right? So if you find the right algorithm for the right problem, you can get excellent performance for the problems that you're dealing with as long as you have the right algorithm for the right problem. Excellent. So since we close the end, I have a few questions for you. The first one in your lab, what are maybe still problems do you think you would love to explore with your group? I mean, maybe it's very challenging or maybe not touch it in depth when it comes to structure, material. You think this, this is not really like uncharted territory that we want to explore. Do you have any ideas or do you think you can share some? We, yes, yeah, sure. We, we're exploring quite a few things, but I'll try to keep it short. Um, one idea that we are really, honestly, very excited about and that frankly seems very unexplored is the notion of cooperative data-driven modeling. So what we've seen in the, in the last few years is that people are excited about machine learning and there's fantastic examples of good use of machine learning in, in design and analysis. But people are still living in bubbles. So, you know, my lab is doing a particular model for a particular material. Someone else's lab is doing whatever model for whatever problem of interest that they have. And, you know, the only thing that exists out there that is actually quite popular is transfer learning. So, you know, imagine that you come up with a machine learning model for a problem. I have a different problem, but I believe that has something in common to yours. So I can take your neural network and just retrain it, right, to transfer learning, train it again, in the hope that actually you've learned already something and I'm going to just learn for the additional thing that is missing. But when I do that, there's an unfortunate consequence. Neural networks suffer from what is called catastrophic forgetting. So I learn for my problem, but I forgot how to solve yours. I would have to go back to the neural network that you trained, so now I have two models. This is not a way to cooperate. You, you should not destroy someone else's work to learn for yourself. What, uh, there's a, a field that is still kind of small in machine learning called continual learning or lifelong learning that is really kind of making the first steps in trying to address this. We, in the last three years, quietly have been working on, on an algorithm to, to actually do cooperative data-driven modeling. And uh, the student is Alexander Bekovich, and he basically had to develop a pruning strategy tailored for our continual learning uh, approach. Then we, we basically came up with, a, with an architectural continual learning strategy of ourselves where we cut the connections, save the, the sub-network associated to a particular task, and then train for the entire network again, cut all the connections and learn the next task, keeping connections that are common without touching them, but that brings the continual learning. Once you're predicting, you're going into the right subnet. And we apply this to ImageNet, the standard uh, uh, 
SF in computer science. And we, we started with 96% accuracy for 10 classes, and then we kept learning more classes, and we stayed at that accuracy. Uh, and the state of the art in that literature uh, ended up with 76 or 70-something percent. So at the end of the 10 tasks, we were more than 20% better in terms of accuracy than the literature. And that made us very excited because then we could apply this, for example, to material science, to materials problems. And then actually last week, we just released a paper, Cooperative Data Driven Modeling. We're applying this to the problem that you were describing, hyperelasticity for, uh, in fact, actually, sort of plasticity of material microstructures, which is even a little bit harder than hyperelasticity. Excellent. Congratulations for the paper. Maybe we'll check it out some. Thank you. We're very excited about it. I think this is going to be important for our group, at least. It's in the description. Maybe the last question for you. What's your aspiration, Miguel, in your, your work? Maybe you're clearly so passionate about what you're doing, and I feel that uh, you're so driven about uh, solving these problems. But what is your ultimate uh, like aspiration with your group or in the field? I, you know, I still have the dream that uh, we as a group will contribute to uh, somehow a small step to artificial general intelligence, where we will actually uh, get or help getting closer to reasoning. And it's, you know, I'm an applied scientist and it's weird for me to say something like this, but the dream is really that, to help computer scientists in that quest. Because I also do believe that if we do that, then we'll be able to design, analyze, create new theories that are completely outside our grasp at the moment. Because the design spaces are too vast, because the phenomena is too complex uh, for, for our human minds to to handle. I'm sure this is far away, uh, but you asked for the dream, that's the dream. Okay, uh, maybe another question. Did you receive any advice, maybe stick to your mind? I don't know if there is someone give you advice or something would like to share maybe with a life changing for you in the career or perspective about solving problems. Do you receive any life changing advices? Well, you know, I always am careful about providing advice to others because, you know, I tell you what, looking back and, and especially, you know, observing scientists that are better than myself, I, um, I think that you as a scientist, no matter at what stage of your career you are, should never try to take the shortcuts, you know. I, I don't think that publishing a lot of papers, you know, or uh, trying to, to go for always for the low-hanging fruit in science is really the way to go. And if you think about it, of course, this is an obvious, <laughs> it's an obvious piece of advice of observation. But in practice, it's very difficult in the world of today to actually do that, you know. It would be much easier for Alexander, for example, to, you know, take a transfer learning algorithm and apply it to a particular problem. Right? The algorithms exist, you know the problems that you're trying to solve, and you know, there's a lot of people doing that and there's no, nothing wrong with it. But, but what I'm trying to say is that it's incomparably harder to say, well, you know, this algorithm doesn't exist, so could we contribute to it? And you know, the algorithm is not perfect. I'm sure that people will come up with much better solutions in the end and so on. 
but he did not take the shortcut. He tried his best to come up with something new. And, and frankly, this is a lot easier to say than to do. And it takes a lot of resilience and belief in yourself to actually pursue answers, solutions for problems that you don't have the answers and the solutions in the first place. And you know, it turns out that maybe in the end you won't find them. You know, the world is not rosy. Maybe, you know, you were not lucky with the problem that you defined. Uh, you know, the problem was too hard. Or perhaps you were just not, you didn't have the right knowledge to, to, to get to a particular solution. And that's fine. That should not be the end of the world in science, right? We are paid to explore, to find new knowledge. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. Going for the low-hanging fruits, to publish a lot, to get a job, to continue doing the same, is nonsensical. This is not what science is about. And if you are a young scientist or a senior scientist, even if you didn't hear anything else from this conversation, be true to yourself, search for true knowledge, and try to contribute honestly to make science a better place. If you are successful, you'll, have, you'll be tremendously successful and you'll climb to the pinnacle of science. Uh, but if you're not, you've done it, you've tried it. It's the process, not the result. And I think we as scientists tend to forget this quite a bit, to be honest. First of all, I would like to say thank you so much for being honest. And uh, I really deeply respect what you say. I think that actually what we need is our mad respect to you. Thank you, Miguel, for saying that. I don't know if you have any final words. I think you said really great words. And I, I don't know if you have any final words for people listening or maybe people with the robotics field. I don't know if you have any final words like to say. I would like to thank you. And I would like to, to thank what, uh, the work that you're doing and the fact that you're putting yourself out there. And, and interviewing different people from different backgrounds uh, and, and learning and, and teaching others about what, uh, what people do. Please keep up. I'll be following your work closely and, and best of luck.